Dr. William Polonsky has an ongoing commercial relationship with Insulit, and Insulit has paid him a fee to participate in the making of this podcast. Please speak with your healthcare team before making any changes to your diabetes management. This podcast provides general information only and should not be construed as medical advice. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers only. Please consult the show notes and the product user guide for more information. Hi everyone, I'm Nancy Hanna, Clinical Services Manager at Insulet, coming to you live from our Omnipod Beyond the Bullis podcast booth at the, let me see if I can say this all in one breath, annual meeting and exhibition of Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, ADCES for short. Thank God there's an Ooh. acronym. All right, Nancy, you did it. ADCES, that is definitely a mouthful. I'm Dina Gottesman, Senior Clinical Manager at Insulet, and I am so happy to be back at Beyond the Bolus. It's so good to be here. Today, as we always do on Beyond the Bolus, we'll be chatting to leading healthcare professionals who are always striving to make a difference in diabetes. We'll also be discussing how we can improve the quality of life with diabetes, and specifically how the role of technology can help in managing diabetes, as well as the impact on patient behavior. All right, who's our first guest, Nancy? Our first guest today is Dr. William Polonsky. His list of accolades is quite extensive. Get ready for this. It is. Dr. Polonsky is president and founder of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute, the world's first organization dedicated to studying and addressing the unmet psychological needs of people with diabetes. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. Yeah. He's also an associate clinical professor in medicine at the University of California in San Diego. Not only that, he has received his PhD in clinical psychology from Yale University, and has served as senior psychologist at Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston. He is a faculty member at Harvard Medical School, and I don't know if you've heard of that, and chairman of the National Certification Board for Diabetes Educator. That's incredible. I can't wait to meet this guy. (laughs) Man, it's a lot to say. I know. I'm getting tired. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist and certified diabetes care and education specialist. He received the American Diabetes Association's 2020 Outstanding Educator in Diabetes Award and the American Diabetes Association's 2014 Richard R. Rubin Award for Distinguished Contributions to Behavioral Medicine and Psychology. We're very lucky to have him here today. He's an active researcher in the field of behavioral diabetes. And his most recent projects have focused on quality of life in diabetes, diabetes-related distress, depression, hypoglycemic fear, and glucose monitoring behavior and attitudes in people living with diabetes, which is a whole lot of things. That's amazing. Dr. Polanski, it is a pleasure to meet you. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you. So before we kind of get into it, I always like to do a little icebreaker because, you know, we want to... Get, get comfortable with the, the microphone. That's right. So what's your favorite ice cream? Oh, my goodness. Well, I am lactose intolerant. Oh, no. Well, there's so still <laughs> options for that I, these days. But I have still found ice one ice cream shop in Paso Robles, California, that makes the best lactose-free ice cream in the universe. Now, luckily for me, Paso Robles is like about seven hours from my house. Oh, man. <laughs> so I don't, I don't get to binge out often. But I don't even care what flavor it is. I have, I have all their flavors when I go there. It's wonderful. So it's always good for our listeners to hear about your career journey. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into diabetes? Well, um, I stumbled into the field of diabetes way back in the 80s. And I am, by training, what's called a, a clinical health psychologist. I was working in a completely different field. I got really tired of what I was doing. 
And really almost by accident, I stumbled into a job at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Boston. Didn't really know what I was doing. Luckily for me, the Jocelyn had, if I remember correctly, hadn't really ever hired anybody like me before. And they weren't sure that they even needed a psychologist <laughs> there. Little and did I, they know. Well, you know what? I wasn't so sure either. But they said, you know, why don't you come work here for like, you know, six months? Let's just see what happens. And I still remember the very first day I was there because I went, I walked in and there was this big waiting room. And I think, what on earth am I doing here? And so luckily I'm a friendly guy like you guys. So I walked up to the first person I saw in the waiting room and I introduced myself and I said, uh, I do have one question for you. I, could you tell me what's living with diabetes like for you? And I still remember she looked at me in shock and she said something that really surprised me. She said, thank you. And I remember I looked behind me and I went, Thank you. Are you talking to me? Talking to me? What, what, do you, what do you mean, thank you? She says, well, you know, I've had, I've had diabetes for 35 years, and no one ever has asked me that question before. I went, oh, that seems really odd. So then she began to tell me what was driving her crazy about diabetes. I thanked her, and I spent the rest of the day wandering around the waiting room just asking people the same question. And by the end of the day, I went, holy moly. There's a real need here. There's a huge, giant need that no one has even recognized. You know, since that day, I... I still ask the same dumb question to everybody I meet. And, it's not um, dumb at all. It's I think like, it disarms people, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. and it's, I just feel lucky every day. I feel lucky, lucky, lucky about all the thousands of people I've had a chance to meet and hopefully help a lot of them too. Is there a piece of advice or something that you would sort of offer, you know, a golden nugget of a, a tip, if you will, for somebody starting out in the field of diabetes education? And I would say my favorite one is please remember you're never going to meet anybody who has diabetes who is unmotivated to live a long and healthy life. Just like you aren't, just like I'm not, there's nobody who's unmotivated to live a long and healthy life. And the reason that's so important is if you can believe that for the next day as you're sitting there talking to folks with diabetes, it means that you're on the same side and that you're not there to hassle them, tell them what they're doing wrong, judge them. You're really there to appreciate that you're on the same side and your job is to figure out, well, what's in the way? If you're, if you're having a tough time succeeding with diabetes, what's in the way? And that changes everything in terms of how you as a healthcare provider will do a better job with your patients and will help you be more successful. You know, that's a perspective I've never actually considered. I've always thought, well, what's what's their obstacle, right? What's their but I've never considered, well, everybody wants to live a healthy life, so then what's the problem? But that's a that's a different take on you know, I would imagine that really changes the conversation. Yeah, it changes the attitude, it changes everything. It means you and I are on the same side and how can I be of help to help you figure out what's in your way? My my wheels are spinning from that. <laughs> it's uh it is a really good I mean I always kind of think about what, you know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all and, and, and really trying to validate. I think, I think it's critically important as, as providers that we validate our patients. You know, they, they're so used to coming into the doctor's office and getting yelled at, you know, and I think that's such a terrible feeling for them to, to know that they're coming. So, so in order to disarm them, it's a, it's a good piece to have. Well, we work hard to try and 
help support healthcare providers to stop judging their patients and to stop thinking of A1Cs as as the end all be all yeah. judgments. Yeah. Or that, who's non-compliant, I would imagine, who's compliant, who's And the judgment goes away when you realize the person you're talking to, just like you, would prefer to live a long and healthy life. That's excellent. Can you um, tell us a little bit about, I mean, I think you got into this a little bit, but can you tell us about how you created the world's first behavioral diabetes institute? You saw there was an unmet need. At what point did you say, hey, we should really create this institute and move forward with this? Oh, gosh. So I think it's our... 20th anniversary this year. Wow, so, congrats. Thanks. And I think the even I'll tell you something even sadder. So we like to, again, as you mentioned, we're the world's first uh, actually nonprofit organization that's wholly dedicated to addressing the unmet emotional and behavioral needs of people with diabetes. I think what's really sad is I think we're still the only one, still, after 20 years. And uh, it's hard for me to even think about what the reason is because it's so obvious. <laughs> You know, our job was, was and continues to be threefold. Number one, we continue to see people are having a tough time managing their diabetes, so we operate as clinicians to help people as individuals and groups. We do a lot of research to try and, again, identify that, understand the emotional quality of life issues, et cetera, et cetera, that are really important, and again, looking for solutions. And we do a lot of training in health, of healthcare providers to help them do a better job to address some of these emotional and behavioral issues. And we just saw it was a perfect way to sort of bring together all three of those and to uh, um, uh, find other people, like-minded people, to come join us and to work with us and hopefully make it a bigger deal. Forgive me, is this an actual brick-and-mortar location? And are you... Are you receiving? hiring? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> <laughs> Shh, my manager might hear this. Stop. <laughs> is it a brick-and-mortar location? Do you receive referrals from other diabetes centers? Yeah. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's and a how, real honest-to-goodness place. And how <laughs> how large is this institute? Oh, it's gigantic. I can't even see one end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, we are lean and mean, so we actually keep things rather small. Okay. So it's not like I can show you the, you know... Uh, the factory floor or anything like that. I mean, it's probably, I don't know, seven or eight offices with a huge space when we try to do group how, programs. How many clinicians? I would just, at this point, it's small now. It's probably okay. only three or four of us. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you okay. do telehealth? So, like, around the country, or is this solely local? California. Yeah. I do some telehealth, but actually our license limits us. So I can do it mostly in California. So I did, of course, like everyone did because of uh, the pandemic. I continue to do some of it. I don't, I, I really don't like it. As a psychologist, there are important nuances you just can't pick up in Zoom. But to be fair, speaking of the pandemic, you can't pick it up when someone's wearing a mask in front of you either. So, um, so I continue to do it simply because it's the only way we can help people who actually don't live anywhere near us in San Diego. Um, and sometimes, under certain licensing and conditions, we can do it out, out of the state, which is, I wish, we could, I wish it was better. Yeah, of yeah. course. But that's really neat. That's, that's really unique and great. Yeah. Okay, your turn. That's <laughs> 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 my questions for now. Golly gee. Diabetes distress is obviously like an extraordinarily enormous component to our patients, right? So that diabetes burnout, diabetes distress. And that's been, I think, a big part of the kinds of things that you address and discuss. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Well, if I remember correctly, it was my colleagues and I who made up the term diabetes distress. And it resulted from the fact that we kept asking people that same initial question, which is, so what's living with diabetes like for you? And as people answered us and we began to think about what they were telling us and we began to initiate early research, we realized, wait a minute, there's something really clear here. And it was this idea of what became what were formerly called diabetes-related emotional distress. And we began to build on that as not just clinicians, but as scientists. So we developed a, an initial uh, questionnaire to try and measure that. And that was back in 1995. And since then, we've, I think we've developed seven or eight different incarnations of different scales to assess and understand and uh, uh, address problems of diabetes distress as we as we as that enlarges more and more uh, I think we were surprised by how what an enormous thing it has become yeah. all here and all over the world um, and I cannot tell you how happy I'm about that to that there's this appreciation that this is a big deal I do want to say one more thing about diabetes stress it is not pathology it is not like saying someone's has a profound depressive disorder to say someone is struggling with diabetes distress means they're normal Right. That to live with diabetes means there is something about you that's probably driving you crazy yeah. about this disease. But it doesn't mean that that's not going to be important for us to recognize what that is and to begin to try and address that. Do you think the two often become confused with one another? Do you think that we have a lot of people with diabetes distress that are being, you know, misdiagnosed with depression, potentially? Yes. There's no question about that. And now this is where you have to prevent me from going into lecture mode. But we've done a lot of, <laughs> we've actually done a lot of work in this area. And with my colleagues, two of my colleagues in particular, Jeff Gonzalez and Larry Fisher, we've written several articles where we've really pointed out what a big problem this is and that there is an overlap between depression and diabetes distress. And the overlap has to do with what the core of each of them is. So what diabetes distress is, is, is about is people feeling powerless and out of control about their diabetes in some fashion. And if you think about what's depression, the cognitive or the psychological core of depression is also about feeling powerless and out of control. I feel like bad things are happening to me and it feels like there's nothing I can do about it. So you can see how they overlap. But we've spent a lot of effort to try to explain how you assess them very differently, how they are very different. For the simple reason is that really what you're struggling with is diabetes distress. And someone can't bother to notice that and just oh, this person's moody and depressed. They'll just give them, oh, you need to be on an antidepressant medication, right. which doesn't work to magically get rid of diabetes distress at all. For sure. I can't, I can't think of, do, are your scales being used? I would imagine maybe sometimes they're being used in endocrine clinics, maybe. But is there any sort of a movement to maybe potentially move those scales into primary care assessments and, you know, not, you know, treating the person with diabetes with a different set of scales, so to speak. Because I know when you go to the doctor, they're constantly, you know, do you feel depressed? Do you feel like you can't control anything? Do you feel, you know, do you potentially think of self-harm? Things like that. But do you think maybe we should be giving our patients, with, our people with type 1 diabetes different scales? Uh, you know, maybe. I mean, again, we have these scales, and I would like to see them used more, but my concern is, I don't want to see people using scales and then no one ever talks about it. And 
And to be fair, most people in busy practices are already busy enough. And the last thing they want to do is to engage with any of these instruments. You know, oftentimes, even though we're the people who made up this idea of diabetes distress, I will often tell busy healthcare providers, please don't even bother using our scales, but do ask everybody this one simple question. Mrs. Smith, it's nice to see you today. Can you tell me one thing about diabetes that's driving you crazy? At least do that. And then at least pretend to listen to the answer. Yeah. Right. Um, pretend to listen. Yeah. If we want to do something fancier, we can talk about our diabetes distress scales and how they can no, make a difference. No, but that's an important distinction in terms of the vet, like the time. And it is asking that one question that I think can, the disarming of, of the patient to allow them to feel like they will be heard, I think is such an important part. Absolutely. Let's pivot a little I bit. I was just going to do that, but you go ahead. I want to watch go. you guys pivot together. <laughs> no, you go. We're going to fly off the booth. Okay, so Omnibot 5 has been out for a year, and we've seen improvements in A1C, time and range, minimal hypoglycemia in pediatrics, and now there are psychosocial outcomes that have been published to show how the system has impacted users and families with quality of life uh, perspectives and, and issues. Can you tell us about the study on psychosocial outcomes with the Omnipod 5 automated insulin delivery system in children and adolescents with type 1 diabetes and their caregivers? Just a 10,000-foot overview. Sure. I was super excited to be part of this study. The lead author is a, one of my colleagues. His name is Corey Hood. And it, the results look very similar to what we published actually last year, which looked at the impact on adults when you introduce the Omnipod 5. And the results were just as exciting as we would expect to see with really quite significant improvements in quality of life for children, for, uh, for even teenagers, hard to show anything in teenagers, <laughs> um, especially looking at diabetes-specific quality of life. So that means improvements in things like diabetes distress or concerns about hypoglycemia or well-being. The other equally important finding in that study is its impact on caregivers, and primarily that means parents. Because if there's one thing we know, and we've done the studies, is that parents are way more d distressed about diabetes and freaked out and worried than their kids are. And especially they're more fr frightened and worried about hypoglycemia. And so what was found in this uh, single-arm Omnipod 5 trial is, again, what we were just delighted to see which is most importantly, parents were sleeping better. Let's talk about sleep. Sleep <laughs> is important. Yeah. I know this. I have two kids. So, you know, sleep is, you know, you don't sleep enough, you can't think. You can't function. Although a lot of people tend to do okay. Tell me why sleep in caregivers is especially important. Well, we'll talk about why it's a problem, first of all. Okay, let's talk I mean, about why it's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem, again, because of worries about, primarily because of hypoglycemic fear. Is my child going to sleep through the night. And when you have a technology like the Omnipod 5 that can help to smooth things out and reduce your risk for severe hypoglycemia, it helps parents to be able to say, you know, maybe I can actually relax a little bit. Maybe I can actually fall asleep and, and think, you know what, odds are good my kid's still going to be alive tomorrow morning. I don't have to get up every couple hours and double check what their glucose levels are. It provides parents with confidence. And we actually saw that in some of the, specifically that in that finding as well in the data, the parents feeling more confident, more confident about hypoglycemia in particular. And this is huge. You know, it's important to mention, by the way, in this, in this study, as we saw in both in the kids and the adults, that 
many of these people came into the study already with technology. Many of them already had continuous glucose monitors, which can make a difference. But you add in this other remarkable, um, you know, technology of the hybrid closed loop pump, and you see additional uh, improvements. Again, like sleep, like reducing diabetes stress, and greater well-being in parents overall, because as you know personally, if you can help people sleep better, they're going to start reporting, you know, life seems a little better. Uh, and they feel better in, even in, in general. So for us, it's delightful to know that these technologies can not only make a difference in helping people be safer in terms of their glycemic levels, but that can actually help people have better lives. What would you say is one of the challenges of this technology that perhaps is contributing to the distress? Because I'm sure sometimes, is it going to fail? You know, how do I have faith in it? Um, are there are there challenges that you're experiencing in with with the with the folks that you talk to i would say rarely that happens but it does um, especially if, if people who have had uh long experiences living with type 1 diabetes so we see for lots of folks anytime there's a, a introduction of new technology that tends to automate things that can be a problem for people who are used to doing things on their own i'll just give you a very old example i remember when insulin pens first came out, and how many of our older type ones were very uncomfortable about that. Like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. I like to draw my insulin out of a syringe and give it to myself. This insulin pen, it's opaque. <laughs> I can't even tell how much is, I can't even how see how I much know? is delivered. Right. Exactly. You want me to how trust that this is really happening? Right. And so you can think about introduction of a hybrid closed loop system is sort of that on steroids. Sure. So we very, very occasionally have someone who starts to almost fight with the system. They're not really sure it's doing what they need or maybe it's not working fast enough. So they will fight with it. But it's, you know, we see oftentimes the trainers are so good and you help people get a good start and set expectations well. People can really do well. And I'm really delighted to see that we're not seeing too many problems and people with discomfort at the beginning. At least we're not. That's, That's excellent. Nice. An additional problem in that age group is they don't tend to report hypoglycemia. Of course not. They don't well, feel excuse it. Excuse mom, I'm feeling a little hypoglycemic at the moment. No, of course not. No, it's always, That's is it a Dewey. tantrum That's or is Dewey. it a little <laughs> blood sugar? You know, like what's happening? Did you cut the banana wrong or, you know, they just, who knows? Exactly. <laughs> and again, I think I just want to highlight how under-recognized it is, how profoundly distressed parents of kids with type 1 are of all ages and it it can be it isn't just about hypoglycemia it's about the guilt of what's happened to my kid and any high blood sugar is my fault and all the terrible un unreasonable things that p do parents do to themselves just to make make things miserable and I, it's so wonderful that this technology can ease things ease things for them along those lines how do you think diabetes educators can help support our our patients through some of those challenges. Hmm, say more about that. What are you really asking? <laughs> well, just, I mean, I think as a diabetes educator, the idea of, I, I'm not a mental health professional, and I feel like a lot of what I end up doing when I'm speaking with my patients is mental health stuff, right? Because it's not about that you're not bolusing. It's why aren't you bolusing? What's going on there? Or sometimes families giving guilt to, you know, I recently did a training, a group training where 
there was an 11 year old child and a bunch of 20 year olds starting on the Omnipod 5 and mom said, well, I don't trust that she's gonna do what she needs to do. I think as an educator, when we're, when we're talking to parents or young adults even, it's out of my wheelhouse. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. I kind of have the sense of things are, and I get, personally, I, I'm, most of my patients are appreciate, are very appreciative of the way that I sort of talk to them like a person and not Therapeutic just- Therapeutic conversations. Yeah, it's an important yeah. thing, but I don't know that everybody, you know, it can, it can feel daunting and overwhelming. And you, you know, it's not just a matter of like teaching them how to bolus. There's, there's so much more to a, a conversation with a patient who has diabetes. Um, and and for, for other diabetes educators out there, healthcare professionals in general, what would be a good sort of guideline or tip to have us keep in the back of our heads, other than what we spoke about before, but a little bit more sort of in depth, as we are not mental health care professionals, but it is such a critical part of what we do to help our patients. Yeah. You know, we do a lot of training of diabetes educators and other healthcare providers. And the thing that we probably want to we get across first is stop trying to fix things. Um, that you have to take a few moments and be a better listener. What we see is that most healthcare providers are over-trained as problem solvers. And that's not very useful if you don't really know what the problem is. So, uh, and it's extremely hard to get educators and other healthcare providers to take a few moments and be a better listener. That's why we come back to all over and over again. What's one thing about diabetes that's driving you crazy? You don't know what's wrong until you ask. And you need to kind of hang with that with your patients for a few minutes. Um, and there's literally nothing more important than that. And by the way, if you ask that question, what's one thing about diabetes is driving you crazy, and you hear the answer, you still don't have to fix it. You've done a very powerful intervention by asking, and you've done a very powerful intervention by listening to the answer, and hopefully in as sincere a way as you can, to normalize that for this person. Yeah, that sounds tough. Or yeah, a lot of other people who, who feel just the same way you do. Yeah. And if you can then move on to figure out, let's think about how, how I can possibly have any helped you to figure out what we can do about this, that's wonderful. But believe me, that's down the road, that's bonus. That's a really, really important piece of advice because I think as providers, I'm a dietitian, I'm sure it's the same for nurses, our inclination is to help and fix and make it better and, oh, yeah. and, and do all of the things. Put a band-aid on. Yeah, yeah or, or just, you know, I'll get try and get to the root of it or figure it out, but sometimes it, it isn't the answer. Yeah. I, and by the way, I want you to help and fix. Of course. Sure, sure, not sure, sure. Of course. No, right. Yeah. But that's a, that's the point, right? So, I, I mean, I've always said validation is is half of the battle in terms of our, Absolutely. our patients. They Recognizing. need to be able to hate diabetes sometimes, you know, and I think they're not encouraged maybe that's not the right word or uh it's, it's not discussed maybe yeah, you're allowed know, to hate this you're allowed to be miserable with it's this. not awesome you know i heard but, one of your talks about you're allowed to take a vacation and a break but let's let's make a plan on how to do that yeah there's safe vacations and unsafe vacations let's figure out a way to let's help help you to have a break from your diabetes in a way that be be restorative for you without hurting you so we're at a conference for diabetes care and education specialists. What? We are? We are! You're Hi, everybody! Me. This is incredible. Hi, guys! <laughs>
<laughs> I was wondering why all these people were here. I know. Who are you all? Um, so, you know, it's ed- typically the educators that are helping patients figure out what their next step is with technology. And aside from features and benefits, what, what else do you think that educators should be recognizing and thinking about when helping families, people living with diabetes, determine what it is they're going to choose and go with? That's a tough to, question. I don't know how to answer that. That's Yeah, it's such a good question, but I'm not even sure how to answer that. You know, again, probably because I'm just a typical psychologist. I want to listen better. You That's know, a good say, tip, though. That's I don't know tip. what your concerns are. I don't know what we're trying to achieve. I don't know what, uh, uh, you know, what kind of technological or hurdles or limitations there might be or limitations of your own resources. I got I think, a lot of questions to ask first. I think that's fair, right? We need to assess our patients individually and yeah. figure out what it is that they do and what's going to work for them. You know, do you pay, do, does your 12-year-old son play lacrosse? Maybe a tubed pump is not going to work so well. What, what questions do you think that educators should be asking aside from what is it that you hate about diabetes or what's difficult? Well, I don't think what's difficult. I say, tell me one thing that's driving you crazy about diabetes. What else should they ask them? Yeah. Well, when I think about working with grown-ups, I go, how, I always like to ask, how do you know when you've succeeded? How, what does it mean to be in a safe place with your diabetes? And the reason we ask that is because it's my kind of weird way of asking you, do you have an A1C goal or a time and range target? Um, and it, or actually, I usually say, have you and your doctor ever had a conversation about what your goal or your target is? For a couple of reasons. One is a lot of people go, oh, no, no, we haven't. Um, and people often have their own interesting and oftentimes odd ideas about that. Um, so, you know, I should be in the normal range, below 6%, right, for my A1C, or I should have a 90% time in range. I want my insulin to carb ratio to be this. Or I should just feel better. But this idea of people wear themselves out, you know, or they feel concerned or haunted that... Um, uh, they think terrible things are going to happen to them and they're just trying harder and harder or just worrying more and more, maybe, about what they need to do to be safe. And we can talk about that. Like, well, you know, we have some decent evidence that, that tells us what, have, what a reasonable target is that can help you, help you know that you've done everything you can to be in a safe place with your diabetes and now you can relax. I mean, I still remember hearing a talk a couple years ago where we were talking about the, to- the typical standard time and range target of 70%. And this fellow said, remember, what that means is you're out of range six hours a day. I went, all right, party, you know? <laughs> so, and we don't, we don't, uh, as I'm like, I work with this wonderful psychologist, her name is uh, Susan Guzman, and she talks about helping people to have, as a goal, what we call a healthy good enough, you know, and how people drive themselves nuts by having unreasonable targets and goals. So having that conversation, helping people to come to some clarity about what they're trying to aim at and then focusing on how we might going back, go, get there, I think is really key and it gets glossed over too easily. It does. Healthy, good enough. I need to I find like that, that study and I need to carry it with me for my type A personality patients who are really trying to kill themselves with 99.9% time and range. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really challenging. That, that, that group, that population of folks whatever the fear that drives them, whichever direction, you know, that they're going to wake up with blind or, you know, whatever, is is very motivating for them. But you wonder what other toll it's taking. And it, how do you, how do you navigate that particular group of folks? So you wrote an article about this. I think we published it last year. We were trying to figure out what the right 
term for this is. So sometimes we call folks, I think we use the term like hypo-enthusiasts. <laughs> Um, and that's not the best, but we huh. we didn't quite know what else to call it. Hypo-enthusiasts. But people who are just feeling really, like really comfortable when their blood sugars were quite low yeah. and very fearful about about any, any glucose uh, elevations at all. And mostly because they're so profoundly fearful about long-term complications and they want to do everything they can to be safe. And unfortunately, what that means is they're often having... Uh, uh, A1C values in the 5% range. And sometimes even we see some of these type 1s in the 4% range. Oy, that's so and scary to me. I can tell you, I just saw someone like this this week, actually. Um, the vast majority of people who that we see in our practice, remember we're tertiary, very tertiary practice, and we've seen a lot of them almost never come to see us voluntarily. They come to see us because their driver's license has been pulled. Wow. Or because... Someone in their family, usually a spouse, who says, I'm going to divorce your ass right. if you don't do something about this. Right. Because they're having oftentimes a, a lot of very scary lows that are creating a, a great deal of angst and trauma in family members and friends. But for the individual, they usually think, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm being successful. This is great. Why do you think that low, which is immediately unsafe is feel safer to them than 150. Yeah, this but this this low is this is a sign of success for me. Hmm. Because, you know, so look, I'm, I'm avoiding in that, in that number. Yeah, I'm avoiding high blood sugars. And it's it this is what we call egocentric. People aren't bothered by this. This is not distressing them. They're they're feeling great about this. And odds are pretty good. This is what's really unfortunate. They're going to their endocrinologist who's typically say to them, hey, yes. you're awesome, man. You're doing great. You're my best patient. So they're getting a lot of positive support for keeping their blood sugars too low. I, I often meet endocrinologists. I'll say, do you have any patients like A1Cs in the 5% range? And, oh, yeah, my best patients. And I'll say, what do they say about their partners? And they say, oh, it's funny you should mention that. They typically say, please never talk to my, <laughs> never talk oh, to my wow. spouse. Wow. Because what the spouse comes in, will say, I'm getting ready to get out of here. You have no idea how many lows this, this guy or gal has because the, the, the patient is probably not talking about that. So, and the technology is making it easier for people to kind of do it sort of successfully, but it's a but concern. But they have to relinquish the control, particularly of on course. Omnipod 5, which of I think that's the, that's the challenge for the hypo enthusiasts. Yeah, and that's what people end up kind of starting to fight with the system a bit, right. even though, again, it's not that common. Right. Can you tell us about any of your patients that are wearing the Omnipod 5 system and, and how their lives have improved? Yeah, you know, we've actually given this to, well, I won't say I've given it. We've probably encouraged them to get started on Omnipod 5. And I will say for some of them, um, I started getting worried it was going to put me out of a job. <laughs> because I had some patients with really, uh, this is the opposite of what we were just talking about, really profound fear of hypoglycemia. So these are people who are keeping their blood sugars too high all the time. And we had tried a variety of different things to try and help them. And we, we can do it. We're pretty good at it, but it, it can take a while. And so just in the past year, we've been able to put some of them on Omnipod 5. And it's amazing. It's probably the most effective thing that we've done. Uh, again, helping people to feel safer and, and to be willing to take risks. 
you know, to be willing to t let themselves drop a little bit and realize, and could see actually when we look at, for example, their clarity reports, how stable things are, how stable their blood sugars are. Do you think are. the adjustable targets help with that in oh, that particular yeah. population? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's been absolutely key. So, um, so I don't mean to say it's a cure-all for this, but it certainly it's been, it's been really striking when I when I've seen that and go, wow, maybe I don't even need to see a psychologist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, Something we, else will come we'll up, always I'm sure. need you. You need yeah. to help the educators. That's fine. Sure. I got plenty else to do. But, uh, but that's probably been the, the most uh, wonderful thing I've seen. Dr. Polanski, what's, what's been your favorite moment so far at the conference? Oh, I think sitting with you guys, of course. <laughs> oh, what are you talking shit. about? Well, that was a leading question, wasn't it? Of course. Are I you mean, kidding? This obviously. Is, yeah. <laughs> you guys are a delight. This is wonderful. <laughs> We're a lot of fun. Yeah. Didn't even start yet. Didn't start. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been a real pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for joining us at Beyond the Bolus. And Until thank you for time. the work that you do. Yes, I think absolutely. it's really, um, it's important. And as a diabetes educator for over 15 years, I, I, I appreciate you. <laughs> thank yes, you. Thank you for your really, work. Lovely to be with you. Thanks. Wow, that was such a great conversation with Dr. Polanski. Yeah, what an honor to have him here on Beyond the Bull List. What were some of your key takeaways? So there were a couple. I think for me, one of the, the most impactful thing is as a provider, as a clinician, as a diabetes educator, to really listen to our patients when we're asking them how they are. Yeah, what are you struggling with? Exactly. I think asking that question and actually listening to the answer is a really important message for, for all healthcare providers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was really important what he said about we as diabetes educators not needing to fix yes. everything right away, how yes. important it is for us to listen first. We can fix yes. eventually, but listen, try to understand really fully what what it is that's going on. Nancy, what is on tap for tomorrow? Because as you know, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to attend tomorrow's session, which I'm very sad about. For those of you who can't see me, I'm shaking my head and glaring at her. Like, how could you leave me again? I know, I know. It's okay. There's some dagger eyes there. That's all right. Tomorrow on tap, we have Anna Sabino, who is a certified diabetes care and education specialist with a master's in social work. So it's going to be an excellent discussion. I'm so sad that you're missing it. I feel like these things go a little smoother when you're here. Aw, that's nice. And it's, but it is, it actually is in, in line with kind of what we've been talking about today. So sort of the theme of diabetes distress. Exactly, exactly. So stay tuned for the next episode with Anna Sabino. I will be sad to miss it, but I will be one of the tens of thousands of listeners to do so. Excellent. That's a wrap for now, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>